Well, good morning and welcome to Hydra Church. My name is Tim. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're new with us, we really do count it an honor that you've chosen to be with us this morning. If you're not new with us, we also count it an honor that you're here with us this morning. We know there are lots of places and lots of things you can be doing on a Sunday morning, and we don't take it for granted that you've chosen to be here this morning. You know, as we were singing, I was thinking about these songs, and, and I'm no longer a slave to fear, and I am who you say I am. And when we start to think about this, we realize just how often we live our lives as slaves to fear. Just how often we actually, that was really funny. I hope it wasn't a beer. If it was, it's okay. But that was really funny. Um, and I'm really glad whoever opened it, you, you don't bother me at all, I promise. <laughs> but it just made me laugh. So we used to tell stories when I worked in Virginia. This would never happen in North Carolina. But in Virginia about, you know, you came to a funeral. And in every state, there are different kind of practices for funerals. You know, there you dressed up in your cowboy hat and boots and, and best shirt and, you know, probably cracked open a beer to toast whoever passed away in the midst of your, That would never happen in North Carolina. Uh, so anyway, slaves to fear. Someone will now be afraid to make any noise the rest of the time. Uh, we live by fear, right? At the depth of our hearts. Many of us struggle with what you could define as shame that is triggered by a fear of being rejected. And for, for all of us, it looks a little different. There is this sense of, I'm not enough, that many of us will hear first. We talk about them, and Brene Brown talks about them as shame gremlins, and they whisper in our ear, you're not enough. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not strong enough. You're not pretty enough. Just not enough. Whatever you are, it's not enough. And if you have the fortitude and the strength and the awareness of truth enough to work past and overcome the gremlins that are whispering in your ear that you're not enough and you'll never be enough, then the second round come in to attack with things like, well, who do you think you are? Right? Who do you think you are? You know, this week we've um, had some things happening with the Rethink Small Conference. Some of you have been around, you know, there's a part of Vision Next. We believe we're called to, to help in the replication of healthy small churches. And so we're hosting and putting on a conference next January for small church leaders and pastors. And our, our denomination has started to get behind it as a whole. And like our Wesleyan Pope, called General Superintendent, has, has been getting involved, and there's an article coming out in the next week about the church. There's, um, they've had videos that are being shown to like the top leaders in the denomination or of sharing of the story of Hydrant and this, and this conference. And, and every time I do, I hear the, who do you think you are? Really, even as I'm telling you this, I am assuming that there are some of you like, well, why are they doing this? Who do they think they are to do this? Right? These are what we hear. I hear them, you hear them, and without realizing it, so many of us live our daily lives as slaves to fear. We're afraid of rejection, and so we do what we do, to hope and prove ourselves as worthy of acceptance. We live in fear, many of us, of rejection from God, and so we have our list of rules and good behaviors and good people. We're not going to do anything that might upset God because he might reject us too. And we live in this constant fear. It had me as a kid. 
We used to call this area up here, there were these things called altars, and there were wooden benches that were really uncomfortable that you went and kneeled at to pray. And you would, we would call them altars, and, and I would go and get like saved again like every week. Every year through my teenage years, I was there praying, God, please don't reject me. Because I lived in this constant fear of God. And we live in this fear of being rejected by the people around us, by the, by the people we care about, by the people that we meet. And so we, we're constantly living behind a facade that we think people will accept. And we're asking ourselves all along a couple of questions. Who, who am I? And why am I here? Who am I and why am I here? Because when we put up the facade, we get so used to that that we forget who we are. We forget why we're here. And we, and we get lost behind just trying to be something or someone that can be accepted. And so in the midst of those questions, now to be honest, most of us, we don't live with those two questions every day. We live with them in the hard times, right? When life falls apart, when things don't go our way, when we get confused or when there's a transition in life, when we're disappointed and we start to ask these questions, well, who am I? Why, why am I here? And so what we've been kind of doing is, is looking at these questions without saying them by, by talking about tattoos and ink. Right? Uh, we, we tattoo ourselves as a way of saying something about who we are and what matters to us. Maybe you remember some of you were here, shared the story of, of the, the most recent tattoo on my forearm. And it, it says, let us not grow weary in doing good. It's from Galatians 6, 9. And the other half of it is because in the right time you'll reap a harvest if you don't give up. And behind it are spears under the stars. And for me, it was a reminder in the times when I feel like the things I'm doing aren't making a difference. When the, the things that I'm doing as a parent or a husband or as a pastor, as a leader, as a friend, they're not working. And I have a tendency in those times to turn inward and find myself in a dark season. I didn't know for a long time what it was, but it's these, these bouts with, with depression and it's in those times I need a reminder not to grow weary of doing good. Because I have a purpose. And that's where the spears come in. See, in the book of Nehemiah, there's a story. There's a story of Nehemiah who's come back to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem to secure the home of his family. And they're rebuilding the walls, but they're starting to get threats and attacks. And so what they do is they start to protect one another. And they stand guard. One builds while the other stands with a spear, even into the night, whatever is needed. And it's my job, it's my calling, it's my purpose to be one of the ones with the spear, standing guard for those who do the work of God. Come to support and be there, even into the dark night, no matter what it takes. We don't grow weary in doing good. And it's a reminder for me when those seasons happen of who I am and why I'm here. And for many people who have tattoos, that's the story. It's something on our skin that lets people know something that's true about us. The sailboat, for me, is a reminder that my life is like a sailboat without a rudder. He tells me when to put it up, the sails, and his spirit takes me where I need to go, and then he'll say, pull it down. I don't get any control. There's no rudder. <laughs> it's just where his spirit takes us. For me, these stories, they matter. They tell something about who I am. 
and why I'm here? And we struggle with these questions, and we find ourselves slaves to fear because of it. And so what we've been trying to look at from Isaiah chapter 43 is some marks, some ink, some tattoos that God has placed in our souls and on our souls from before we were us that tell us who we are. It's who He says we are. Because if we can really begin to understand who God says we are, who the Creator, the one who made us, says we are, then it unleashes the potential to be who we were created to be and to do what we were created to do. But it has to come back to this place of identity. We've got to be able to overcome those shame gremlins and step out of the the slavery of fear by knowing who we are, whose we are, and what we're here to do. We said that, uh, and we look in Isaiah chapter 43 is where we find these marks. So we're going to go there if you have your Bibles or your phone or whatever. Isaiah chapter 43. For that, I will remind you, if you're one of uh, the people who are like, I don't know about these tattoo talk and Christians with tattoos. God was inked, is inked, and it's your name that he has tattooed. Isaiah 49, 16, your name is engraved on his hands. Your name is tattooed on his hands. I have names tattooed on my arm. They're the names of my family because they're mine. They're my responsibility. They're my calling. They're my first priority. They are who God has given to me to be a part of, to invest in. And they will always and permanently be that for me. And so when he has your name marked, is a reminder that you're his. So let's go to Isaiah chapter 43. Beginning at verse 1, it says this. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, and formed you, Israel. Can we, can we stop for a second and recognize this a simple truth? The one who creates is the one with the right to define. If I make something, I get to say what it is. You may look at this thing I created out of pottery and say, that looks more like a broken ashtray. And I say, no, it's a bowl. I get to say because I made it. God created you and me. He gets to say who we are. And so he writes, we see the prophet Isaiah writes, but now this is what the Lord says. The one who created you, Jacob, the one who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you, I have summoned you by name, and you are mine. That's the first of the tattoos we talked about. You are mine because he created us, because he's formed us with all of the different things that have come into our life, good and bad. He has been forming and shaping us, bringing us to who we are. Not that he caused all of it, but that he uses all of it to form us. And not only that, he has redeemed us, he has rescued us. He has set us free from that slavery of fear and death and sin. And then he calls you by name. He invites you into the family because he says, you are mine. Not like a possession, but like one who says, these are mine. I take responsibility for them. My kids do something stupid, they break something, they hurt someone. Those are mine. And that's what God does. We break something, hurt someone. He says, that one's mine. I got it. They're mine. It doesn't change that we belong to him or not. And many of us spend most of our lives trying to cover up this 
tattoo, but it always bleeds through. Many of us feel like the stuff that's happened to us in our lives has covered up this tattoo, but it always bleeds through. He says of you, you are mine. Then we continue on. It says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Many of us, when the fires rage, when life falls apart, when the, when the river is rising, when life's waters feel like they're going to overcome us, like the fire will never go out, that's when we most question God. We most question His presence. We most question His care. He says, when. When you go through the flood. When you go through the fire. When the trials come. There are so many times that, that things get difficult in life, and we say, why God? And he says, because you're alive. That's about a good enough reason. That's about the reason there is. You're alive, so you have trials. It's a good sign. It means you're still breathing. If only dead people have no more problems. So when we enter into the trials, we need to recognize that it is not a sign of God having abandoned us, forgotten us. Or even of us having done anything we weren't supposed to, or that is wrong. Instead, it's a sign that we're breathing. It's a sign that we're alive. It's something we will all deal with. We continue on. He says, For I, the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, I give Egypt for your ransom, ransom, cushion, save it in your stead, since you are. Precious and honored in my sight. And because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. We looked at this last week. In his sight, when he sees you, he doesn't see someone who's not good enough, not smart enough, not strong enough. He doesn't see someone and think, hmm, maybe not you. He sees one who is precious, valuable, priceless and honored, one who is lifted up and worthy, one he loves. He loves you. It's the third tattoo. I love you. I love you. It's like the old heart narrow, his refusal to give up on us. In him, we find what true love is. Many of us are are hopeless romantics, not like We're in love with the idea of love, but we've been spending our whole life looking for what true love really is. And only in God do we find this. In fact, the word used in the New Testament for love of God for us is agape. And many of you may know this, but what you may or may not be realized is that Greek word is used almost nowhere else in Greek literature. Because that kind of love doesn't exist anywhere else. In fact, it's foreign idea for God to love humanity. God to hate humanity, God to use humanity, God to to strike humanity, yes. God to love humanity in a self-sacrificing way, no. For God to love in a way that is dependent on Him and not on you, no. See, that's what we see in Scripture, is true love, a love that is self-sacrificing and is dependent on Him, not on us. See, in our world, we recognize In all of our relationships where love exists, there's always this kind of dependency. I love you as long as. 
And those feelings may continue, but if, if there is unfaithfulness or betrayal or disappointment or, or somehow not living up to the expectations, many times we find that that love begins to die. But nothing we do ends God's love for us. Nothing we can do, would do, or have done, or has been done to us changes our value in his eyes or his love for us. And so we continue on today to the fourth tattoo. It says, do not be afraid for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And he looks at you and he has inked on your soul from before you were you. You were created for my glory. You were created for my glory. You were created to reveal to the world who I am. My power, my love, my goodness, my sacrifice, the way I feel about humanity. You were meant to reveal the depth of who I am to the world. It was built into humanity from creation. If we look at the, the creation narrative, the story in Genesis chapter 1, we find this pattern that was common in ancient worlds. So what would happen when a king began to expand his empire? He would go in, conquer, remove half the people, and then he would put a statue of himself right in the middle so everyone knew who had conquered that land? Who was in charge? To whom the land belonged? And what we see in the story of creation is the God of all creation begin to split chaos and conquer the chaos. And he takes the darkness and he splits it and there's light and there's day. He splits the chaos of the waters and there's the waters above and the waters below. He splits it again and he places land to keep it in check. And then he fills it with his creation, inhabitants, the stars, the sun, and the moon, and the skies, night and dark, or night and day. He, he, he fills the waters above with the birds, the waters below with the fish. He fills the land, fills all creation. And then he says, I'm going to put my image, my statue, right in the middle. And he creates humanity. And humanity's job from the very beginning was to reveal the identity of the Creator, to reveal the glory of God, to reveal the holiness and purity and love and devotion of God, to help everyone around in all of creation to know who God is. The problem we often find is that we get stuck trying to believe the first three tattoos. We, we, we get it in our heads, yes, I'm here, he loves me, he'll be with me, and then we go right back to life as it was. Okay, I'm his. Oh yeah, he loves me. Oh yeah, he won't abandon me. We keep going. And we never step out of what was true of us to discover what could be true of us. We never really own the identity of these tattoos because what happens when we really own this identity, it transforms us so we're never the same. That's the thing about getting a tattoo. When you sit down in that chair, 
and that needle pierces your skin for the first time, you'll never be the same. First, you'll like want more. But the other thing that happens is there's now a permanent mark on your skin, and you can't go back. Like once that needle touches, it's like you gotta let them finish, because otherwise you just got a dot <laughs> or a line. I've known people, they started, they got done, like, nope, just put another line and make it across, I'm done. They got scared, it was too much, too painful, I'm done. But you have now permanently changed yourself. There is something about you that is different and will always be different. When we receive the tattoos that God has inked on our souls, there is a permanent change that happens to us, and we can never go back to who we were. We really embrace them. Now, we can keep trying to cover them up and get stuck living the same life over and over again, but imagine it like this. There's someone who, who, who's contracted a disease and so much money gets spent. Research, time, medicines, tons and tons of time and, and money is spent, and, they, and they're cured. And they're in this final meeting with their doctor. He says, listen, this disease is completely out of your system. It's gone. But, but you need to move. Otherwise, you're going to end up with it again. Like if, if you stay where you are, you're going to end up back in my office in a year. You need to move. And you realize in that moment, not only do I need to move, like I, that may mean leaving a job behind. It may mean leaving people that we've cared about behind. It may mean leaving things that we've known and been comfortable with behind. I don't imagine that someone says, you know what, I just can't do it. And they stay in that old life. And a year later, they're back in the doctor's office. We would look at them and we'd be bewildered. And yet so many of us, we experience God. We experience this reality of recognizing that we're, him, we're his and he has rescued us. We experience what it is to be free of that slavery of fear. We experience what it is to be washed clean. And, and we experience this new identity. But we refuse to leave the old life behind. And it doesn't take long until we drift back into the same addictions and the same habits and the same attitudes that were destroying our lives before we met him. It doesn't take long before our relationships look the same as they did before we met him. And he says, you have to step into who you are. And that means leaving the old life behind. And beginning this new life as a new creation, revealing my glory. Helping the people around you to see who I really am. Because we know that our lives are meant to tell that story. It's what we were created for. Whether, you, whether you, you, you teach or whether you work in a restaurant, whether you drive a truck or whether you, um, whether you work in a, a business office all day or, or, or whatever it is, a stay-at-home mom, your life is meant to tell the story of who Jesus is. It's what you're here for. It's why all of us are here. Who we are is 
his beloved. And we're here to reveal his glory so that all of creation can be transformed. And it doesn't matter what job we do or what, how we spend our time or what passions we have, our purpose remains the same. We can identify that in no matter what work we do, we have this purpose of revealing the glory of God. Our lives tell the story of the one we've met. Our lives tell the story of the one we've met, the one who knows us and sustains us and loves us, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, the one who looks at us looks at us and says, I found you when you were lost. You didn't even know you were lost. Most of us would never want to be defined as lost, but we can remember a time where we're like, I have no clue what's going to happen. I have no clue where to go, what to do. I don't know who I am or why I'm here. And he found us. Like he says in Luke 15 with the story of the coin or or the sheep or the prodigal son that we sang about. He welcomes us home. He's the one who found us when we were lost and gave us our bearings and gave us our identity and began to set us on a new path that has meaning and direction and purpose. We met the one, and our lives are meant to tell the story of the one who loved us when we were unloved. It says that in, in Romans that he reveals his love for us in this, that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So we talked about Good Friday and Easter, the death and resurrection is his love for us. He's the one who transformed us by filling us with love and truth and hope. We saw it changes us from the inside out. We recognize that when we encountered him, it wasn't what we did that made our lives better. It's what he did that made it all possible. He's the one, and we tell the story of the one who made a way through temptation. Right? The one who, who, who says, I've been through what you're going through. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and that there's never a time that he doesn't provide a way out. Now listen, I always feel like I have to say this when we come to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It does not say, it does not say he won't give you more than you can handle. In fact, all of Scripture seems to say he gives you way more than you can handle, but never more than he can handle. What it does say in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is that there will never be a moment when you're tempted and you're not also given a way out. He'll always provide a way out, a way to not sin, to not hurt someone, to not hurt yourself, to avoid the destruction. He fills us with his love, Romans 5, 5. He sets us free. We become free to actually be, to love, to step out of the fear and not be the ones who are fearful of rejection, but be the ones who are accepting of those who are afraid. And he gives us eternal life, John three sixteen. This is the story we're meant to tell. Our lives are meant to tell. We're meant to reveal the glory of God. No matter what we do or how we do it, all of life, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do it all to reveal who he is. So just three ways that we do that. The first is in how we live. Like just the day-to-day normal stuff. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 of the message talks about this. Just take your ordinary day-to-day life and give it to God as a sacrifice. But what does that mean? I think what it means 
is found in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It says this, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And he says that when you're mine and I'm with you, And when you live in and because and for my love, this is what your life will look like. It'll look like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And if your life doesn't look like those things, then maybe you're still stuck in your old life. Now hear me, this is fruit that grows and no fruit grows overnight. So don't like, I came to Jesus yesterday and I'm impatient today. I must be stuck. That's not what I mean. Over time, these things should be revealing themselves more and more. Your life should look more and more like these things. So give you an example. Uh, I told you we, we've been doing a lot with the Rethink Small Conference. It's had provided some opportunities to remember some of the old stories uh, and some of the things that happened when we were, when we were starting Hydrant Church, and, which was really a restart. Which means we closed Goldsboro Wesleyan Church, waited a couple of months, and restarted as Hydrant Church. And just before all of this, about two months before all of this, I was doing something I do every couple of years. I'll come back to this passage, and I'll spend about a month praying. And I'll just pray through these nine words over and over. And God, is there something here that you see missing in me? And there have been times we said, you know what? Joy is missing in you. You live in the negative, and I want to see joy in you, and I'm going to help bring it out if you'll let me. Well, about two months before we closed the church and began the restart process, God said, hey, you're not very gentle, and I said, no kidding. (laughs) See, when I was a junior in high school, I had more technicals than the rest of the basketball team. I don't tend to respond gently when I feel like something is wrong or I've been wronged. And so he knew I was going to need this gentleness for what was ahead that I didn't know was ahead. And he began to to work on me. And he began to show me men who were gentle. And see, what we fail to often realize is that we imagine men who are gentle as weak. But when I actually looked for men who were gentle, I found it was the strongest men that were gentle. It was the most dependable, the most faithful. It was the men that I most wanted to be like and be around who were gentle. And I began to watch how they react and how they handle things and began to pray that God would produce this in me. Began to go to the scriptures, began to discover what it was and began to just kind of lean on him in moments. And he began to test it. He knew what I was going to need before I did. and He wanted this in my life. Because there was a day standing right here, as we were getting close to the shutdown, that a board member stood this far from my face and started to yell at me. And I took a step back, and I didn't yell back. I didn't put him in his place. I very quietly and gently removed him from his position. (laughs) But then, that was just the beginning. Like, it's one thing when somebody gets in your face and starts yelling. Who I mean, they're yelling about whatever they're yelling about. But I responded gently. Then we shut down. 
Have you ever watched the movie Moneyball? Anybody ever seen this? Baseball movie? I'm not a baseball fan. Great movie. End of the movie, it says, first through, one through the wall always gets bloody. You get bloody. One day, I was, again, standing right here. There's something cursed about this spot. I don't know why I stand there for worship. I'm going to move over here now. Um, I just realized I was standing here again. And I heard some commotion out there. We had shut down. We had not yet relaunched. All of the changes were starting to happen. And I hear yelling. And I don't know what's happening. I assume kids are yelling. It's not a kid. It was a grown woman who was yelling throughout the hallway among my children and all of the children, that man is going to burn in hell. And then walked down this aisle, (laughs) pointing at me, you're going to burn in hell. And I just looked at her and smiled, let her finish, and let her walk out. Not what I wanted to do. But you know what's remarkable is there was a man who was there both of those times. A man of influence and compassion, a man who had tamed his own demons of anger. (laughs) When the conflict arose about two years ago, he said, I'll stand with Pastor Tim, no matter what, because I've seen him respond gently when he was attacked. And that man made all the difference in the first five years of Hydrant Church until he passed away. We don't know who's watching, but our lives are meant to tell the story of who Jesus is and of who God is. And God is love. And God is joy. He's patient. Oh, thank Jesus, he's patient. He's kind and gentle, self-controlled, faithful. And when our world imagines God, that's not who they imagine. Because that's not who we've shown them. But our lives are meant to reveal the glory of God and how we live. And how we live. So what does he ask you? Maybe take some time. Maybe this is your month. It's almost May. May has been the month I've prayed this prayer every year, actually. Or every time. I don't do it every year. That would be too depressing. I've got a lot of work to do. A lot of, a lot of time. So maybe May. He says, why don't you go Galatians 5, 22 and 23, and let's pray that. Let's talk that. And just ask him, God, is there one of these that you would like to see more of in me? And would you help me? And be intentional. Learn about it. Grow in it. Look for people who demonstrate it. I think you'll be faithful. The second way is in how we love. In how we love. We're told in Scripture that there is no greater love than a man lay down his life for a friend. And we were having family devotions one time when I was a kid, and I remember us talking about this, and this grand idea of someone who would die for the people they care about. And it's amazing. We live in a, in a military town, and in a few minutes we'll go out there and we'll watch planes go by, and we'll, we talk in this town about people who, who lay down their lives for others in death. But then the question was asked in that family devotion, what if it doesn't mean dying? What if... We're called to lay down our lives in living. 
for the sake of those we love and our friends and those he loves. What does that look like? What does it look like to lay down what you want or what you care about? What, what does it look like to lay down your ambitions or your fears? I am naturally pretty inter, introverted. And um, I was watching this thing, watching Brene Brown give a talk, and she says, I'm introverted. Who else is? And a bunch of people clapped. I'm like, yeah, none of you are introverted. It clapped. Because <laughs> the introverted people were the ones sitting with their hands in their lap looking down when you said that. They weren't drawing any attention to themselves. And you'll figure that out if you hang around because I'll quietly be at some table or corner out here this afternoon. But there was a time when, when God asked me a question because I, I knew and I believed that he didn't change that about me in spite of calling me to lead and to connect with people. He wasn't going to change that. But he asked me this question. Will you care more about the people I send your way than you do about being comfortable. I mean, will you reach beyond your introversion, your fear, your insecurity, your comfort level to show love and concern and care for the people I send your way? That's one of the ways that laying down my life for those he loves, for those I love, for the friends around me, that's one of the ways it is manifested in my life. I don't, I don't know what it may mean for you. As a church, we had to go through this journey of laying down what we loved for those we loved. Laying down what we loved for what we loved more. So we had a church that loved the hymns and loved the way we did things and loved our comfort level. Like loved it all. And nobody out there cared. <laughs> right? And he said, will you lay down what you love for the sake of those I love? And over and over again, we come to this place and point in our lives. We're called to lay down things we care about, things we want, things we imagine for the sake of those he loves, for the sake of the friends that he would bring into our lives. What are we willing to lay down? We demonstrate his willingness to lay down his life for us when we lay down our lives for those around us. And the last thing is the way we serve. The way we serve. This morning there were people serving, little, little teenagers. <laughs> Getting old. We have a VIP rally. It's not for very important people. I mean, the people are very important, but it's our vision, inspiration, and prayer rally each morning for all of the volunteers. And this morning, a teenager, somewhat against her will, um, led the talk that happens during that. And then, against the will of two of her teenage friends, she recruited them. One opened the time of prayer, and one closed the time of prayer. But she shared this story. She said, I've been here since the beginning of Hydrant Church, and I've watched people serve. Serving kids, and serve with teens, and serve in the AV, and serve at first contact, and Mickey hands, and coffee, and all of these different things, and I learned how to serve. She's one of the, the greatest servant leaders in our group of teenagers. In Matthew chapter 5, we find the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is telling us what it looks like 
to be his followers, what it looks like to reveal his glory. And he says, you are the salt and the light of the world. And by your good deeds that people see, they'll then point to me and they'll see my glory. That when they look at our lives and the things that we do, what they see is him. That when they look at your life and my life, it convinces them that God must be real and he must be different than we've imagined him to be. That because of the way we live and the way we love and the way we serve, our lives become the great convincer of who Jesus really is, of who God really is and what's possible in our lives. And we'll come back to these questions. Our lives have these cycles and in every transition and difficult time, we come back to this. Who am I and why am I here? And I encourage you, go back to Isaiah 43. Because he says, you're mine. I'm with you. I'll always be with you. I love you. And you're created for my glory. It's who you are. It's why you're here. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for my friends here today. It's been such a joy to walk through this passage over the last few weeks. It's been a lot of fun to talk about tattoos in church, too. I'm glad you created this place where we can do that. God, I, I'm just in awe of you. For in those times when I struggle to remember who I am or whose I am, to remember why I'm here, that you keep inviting us back to discover what's real, what's true, what's beautiful. You invite us to see all we were created to be and all we were created to do. So would you keep doing the work of setting us free, of growing your fruit in us, inspiring us to serve, and would this truly be a place where people can connect and fill and overflow? In Jesus' name, amen.